5, 5, 1917, to October 15, 1917. A total of 638 officers was graduated and commissioned from the camp. Negro regulars and Negro National Army men who had passed the tests for admission to officers' training camps were sent mainly to the training schools for machine gun officers at Camp Hancock, Augusta, Georgia, the Infantry Officers' Training School at Camp Pike, Little Rock, Arkansas, and the Artillery Officers' Training School at Camp Taylor, Louisville, Kentucky. They were trained along with the white officers. The graduates from these camps along with a few National Guardsmen who had taken the officers' examinations, and others trained in France, made up the balance of the 1.200 commissioned. In connection with the artillery training an interesting fact developed. It had been charged that Negroes could not develop into artillerymen. A strong prejudice against inducting them into that branch of the service had always existed in the Army. It was especially affirmed that the Negro did not possess the mathematical ability necessary to qualify as an expert artillery officer. Nevertheless, out of a number of Negro aspirants, very small in comparison with the white men in training for officers' commissions at the camp, five of the Negroes stood alongside their white brothers at the head of the class. The remainder were sprinkled down the line about in the same proportion and occupying the same relative positions as the whites. The prejudice against the Negro as an artilleryman was further and effectually dispelled in the record made by the 349th, 350th and 351st Artillery Regiments and their machine gun battalions in the 92nd Division, with the exception of the training camp for officers at Des Moines, Iowa. No important attempt was made to establish separate Negro training camps. In the draft quotas from each state were whites and blacks and all with few exceptions were sent to the most convenient camp. Arrangements existed, however, at the different camps for the separate housing and training of the Negro troops. This was in line with the military policy of the government, as well as in deference to the judgment of both white and black officers. It undoubtedly was necessary to separate the two races. Furthermore, as the military policy called for regiments, battalions and divisions made up entirely of Negroes, it was proper to commence the organization at the training camps. Companies formed in this manner thus became homogeneous, accustomed to one another individually and to their officers. The situation was different from the Spanish-American War, where Negro units, at least in one case, served in white regiments. Racial strife and rivalry were eliminated. The only rivalry that existed was the good-natured and healthy one of emulation between members of the same race. On the field of battle there was rivalry and emulation between the whites and blacks, but it was the rivalry of organizations and not of races. The whole was tempered by that splendid admiration and fellow feeling which comes to men of all races when engaged as partners in danger or near death, in the defense and promotion of a great cause, the eternal verities of justice and humanity. Chapter V.I.I.R.E.C.R.U.D.S.C.N.C. of South's intolerance confronted by racial P.A.J.U.D.I.C.A. splendid attitude of Negro shamed it kept out of Navy only 1% of Navy personnel Negroes modified Marines contemplated few half petty officers grade separate ships proposed Negro efficiency in Navy material for black ships Navy opens door to Negro mechanics old feelings of race prejudice and intolerance appearing mainly in the South confronted the Negro at the beginning of the war. The splendid attitude of the Negro shamed and overcame this feeling in other sections of the country, and was beginning to have its effect even in the South. It is true that men of the race were not accepted for voluntary enlistment in numbers of consequence in any section, but had the voluntary system continued in vogue, 
the willingness and desire of the race to serve, coupled with the very necessities of the case, would have altered the condition. No new Negro volunteer units were authorized, but the demand for men would soon have made it imperative. It would have been combated by a certain element in the South, but the friends of the few volunteer units which did exist in that section were firm in their championship and were winning adherence to their view that the number should be increased. The selective draft with its firm dictum that all men within certain ages should be called and the fit ones chosen, put an end to all contention. The act was not passed without bitter opposition which developed in its greatest intensity among the southern senators and representatives, feelings that were inspired entirely by opposition to the Negro. It would have been a bad thing for the country and would have prolonged the war, and possibly might have lost it, if the selective draft had been delayed, but it would have been interesting to see how far the country, especially the South, would have progressed in the matter of raising a volunteer army without accepting Negroes. Undoubtedly they soon would have been glad to recruit them, even in the South. Unfortunately for the Negro, the draft was not able to prevent their being kept out of the Navy. It is a very desirable branch of the service vitiated and clouded. However, with many disgusting and aristocratic traditions, when the Navy was young and the service more arduous, when its vessels were merely armed merchantmen, many of them simply tubs and death traps and not the floating castles of today. The services of Negroes were not disdained, but times and national ideals had changed, and, the shame of it, not to the credit of a commonwealth, for whose birth a Negro had shed the first blood, and a Washington had faced the rigors of a valley forge, a Lincoln the bullet of an assassin, the annual report of the chief of the Bureau of Navigation, rendered to the Secretary of the Navy and covering the fiscal year ending June 30, 1918, showed that in the United States Navy, the United States Naval Reserve Force and the National Naval Volunteers. There was a total of 435.398 men. Of that great number only 5.328 were Negroes, a trifle over 1%. Between June and November 1918, the Navy was recruited to a total force somewhat in excess of 500.000 men, carrying out the same percentage. It is apparent that the aggregate number of Negroes serving in the Navy at the close of the war could not have been much in excess of 6.000. Some extra enlistments of Negroes were contemplated, as the Navy had in process of establishment just prior to the armistice, a new service for Negro recruits. It was to be somewhat similar to the pioneer units of the Army, partaking in some degree of the character of Marines, just as the pioneers partake of the character of infantry, but in general respects resembling more the engineer and stevedore units. About 600 men had been selected for this service when the project was abandoned on account of the ending of the war, with the exception of a very limited number who had been permitted to attain the rank of petty officer. Negroes in the Navy were confined to menial occupations. They were attached to the firing forces as coal passers, while others served as cooks' assistants, mess attendants and in similar duties. Quite a number were full-rated cooks. A few were water tenders, electricians and diners' maids each of which occupations entitled them to the aforesaid rank of petty officer. Among the petty officers some had by sheer merit attained the rank of chief petty officer, which is about equal to the rank of sergeant in the army. The idea of separate ships for the Negro might to some degree ameliorate the sting incident to a race prohibition in that arm of government service. The query is advanced that if we can have black colonels, majors, captains and lieutenants in the army, why cannot we have black commanders, lieutenants, ensigns and such in the Navy, Negroes have often and in divers ways displayed their intelligence and efficiency in the Navy, 
Take, for instance, the case of John Jordan, a Negro of Virginia, who was chief gunner's mate on Admiral Dewey's flagship the Olympia during the Spanish-American War, and was the man who fired the first shot at the enemy at Manila Bay. A Negro chief electrician, Salisbury Brooks, was the originator of inventions which were adopted without reservation by the Navy designers and changed the construction of modern battleships. One of the principal instructors on the USS Essex, the government training ship at Norfolk, is Matthew Anderson, a Negro. He has trained thousands of men, many of them now officers, in the art and duties of seamanship. Scores of Negroes, men of the type of these in the Navy, would furnish the nucleus for officers and crews of separate Negro ships. In a recent issue of Power Navy, a magazine devoted entirely to naval affairs, especially as regards the enlisted man, a writer reflects the opinion of these men in the following article, whether you like the black man or not, whether you believe in a square deal for him or not. You can't point an accusing finger at his patriotism, his Americanism or his fighting ability. It is fair to neither the white man nor the black man to have the black man compete with the white man in the Navy. True. We have black petty officers here and there in the Navy, and in some cases black chief petty officers. It stands to a reason that they must have been mighty good men to advance. They surely must know their business every inch of it to advance to these ratings. Yet they are not wanted in these ratings because they involve the black man having charge of white men under him. Outside of the Messman branch you will find comparatively few Negroes in the Navy today. There should be black ships assigned to be manned by American Negroes. These are days of democracy, equality and freedom, continues the writer. If a man is good enough to go over the top and die for these principles, he is good enough to promote in the Navy. Why not try it? Put the black men on their own ships. Promote them, rate them, just the same as the white man, but above all keep them on their own ships. It is fair to them and fair to the white men. The Brazilian and Argentine navies had black ships. Recruiting officers of the navy have recently opened the doors to discharged Negro soldiers, and some civilians. If physically fit they are permitted to enlist as machinists and electricians. The navy has opened a school for machinists at Charleston, SC and a school for electricians at Hampton Roads. VA. Men for the machinist school are enlisted as firemen third class. While in training they are paid 30 a month. They also receive their clothing allotment, their food, dried comfortable quarters in which to live, and all textbooks and practical working tools. In return for this chance to become proficient in a very necessary trade, all that is required of those enlisting is a knowledge of common fractions, ambition to learn the trade, energy and a strict attention to the instruction given them. Subjects taught in the course are arithmetic, notebook sketching, practical engineering, theoretical engineering, clipping and filing, drilling, pipe fitting, repair work, rebabbing, brazing, tinsmithing, lathes, shapers, milling machines and grinders. It will be seen that they get a vast amount of mechanical knowledge and practically to trades, machinists and engineering. In the electrical school the course is equally thorough. The men get a high grade of instruction. Regardless of cost of material and tools, the best textbooks that can be had are available for their use. This liberality in order to get machinists and electricians in the Navy, argues that some change of attitude towards the Negro is contemplated. It may evolve into the establishment of black ships. The Negro sailor has been pleading for years that his color has been a bar to him. With a ship of his own, would come his chance. He would strive, do all within his power to make it a success and would succeed. Chapter IX. 
previous wars in which the Negro figured, shot heard around the world C.R.I.S.P.U.S. A.D.D.U.C.K. Slave League Sons of Freedom The Boston Massacre Anniversary Kept for Years William N.E.L.L. Historian 3.000 Negroes in Washington's Forces A stirring history Negro woman soldier border Indian wars Negro heroes Our American school histories teach us that the shot which was heard around the world, the opening gun of the Revolutionary War, was fired at Lexington in 1775. The phrase embodies a precious sentiment, time has molded many leaders, the inspiration for almost a century and a half of the patriotic youth of our land. This is as it should be. All honor and all praise to the deathless heroes of that time and occasion. But why has not history been more just, at least, more explicit? Why not say that the shot which started the revolution that first great movement for human liberty and the emancipation of nations was fired five years earlier, was fired not by, but at, a Negro, Chris Pizzatux, the leader of the citizens in that event of March 5, 1770, known as the Boston Massacre. He was the first man upon whom the British soldiers fired and the first to fall, the pioneer martyr for American independence. It is perhaps fitting, a manifestation of the inscrutable ways of providence, that the first life given in behalf of a nation about to throw off a yoke of bondage, was that of a representative of a race, despised, oppressed and enslaved. Bar the historian, in speaking of the scenes of the 5th of March says, the people were greatly exasperated. The multitude ran towards King Street crying, let us drive out these rebels, they have no business here, the rioters rushed furiously towards the custom house, they approached the sentinel, crying kill him, kill him, they assaulted him with snowballs, pieces of ice, and whatever they could lay their hands upon, the guard were then called, and in marching to the custom house, they encountered a band of the populace, led by a mulatto named Atux, who brandished their clubs and pelted them with snowballs, the maledictions, the imprecations, the execrations of the multitude, were horrible. In the midst of a torrent of invective from every quarter, the military were challenged to fire. The populace advanced to the points of their bayonets. The soldiers appeared like statues. The cries, the howlings, the menaces, the violent din of bells still sounding the alarm, increased the confusion and the horrors of these moments. At length the mulatto attacks and twelve of his companions, pressing forward, environed the soldiers and striking their muskets with their clubs, cried to the multitude, be not afraid, they dare not fire, why do you hesitate, why do you not kill them, why not crush them at once, the mulatto lifted his arms against Captain Preston, and having turned one of the muskets, he seized the bayonet with his left hand, as if he intended to execute his threat at this moment, confused cries were heard, the wretches dare not fire, firing succeeds, a tux is slain, other discharges follow. Three were killed, five severely wounded and several others slightly. A tux was killed by Montgomery, one of Captain Preston's soldiers. He had been foremost in resisting and was first slain. As proof of a front engagement, he received two balls, one in each breast. The white men killed with a tux were Samuel Maverick, Samuel Gray and Jonas Caldwell. John Adams, afterwards President of the United States was counsel for the soldiers in the investigation which followed. He admitted that Atux appeared to have been the hero of the occasion and the leader of the people. Atux and Caldwell, not being residents of Boston, were buried from Fenoy Hall, the cradle of liberty. The citizens generally participated in the solemnities. If the outrages against the American colonists had not been so flagrant, 
and so well embedded as indisputable records of our history, if the action of the military authorities had not been so arbitrary. The uprising of Atux and his followers might be looked upon as a common, reprehensible riot and the participants as a band of misguided incendiaries. Subsequent reverence for the occasion, disproves any such view. Judge Dawes, a prominent jurist of the time, as well as a brilliant exponent of the people, alluding in 1775 to the event, said, the provocation of that night must be numbered among the master springs which gave the first motion to a vast machinery a noble and comprehensive system of national independence. Ramsey's History of the American Revolution, says, the anniversary of the 5th of March was observed with great solemnity, eloquent orators were successively employed to preserve the remembrance of it fresh in the mind. On these occasions the blessings of liberty, the horrors of slavery, and the danger of a standing army, were presented to the public view. These annual orations administered fuel to the fire of liberty and kept it burning with an irresistible flame. The 5th of March continued to be celebrated for the above reasons until the anniversary of the Declaration of American Independence was substituted in its place, and its orators were expected to honor the feelings and principles of the former as having given birth to the latter. On the 5th of March 1776, Washington repaired to the entrenchments. Remember, said he, it is the 5th of March, and avenge the death of your brethren. In the introduction to a book entitled, The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, by William C. Nell, a Negro historian, Harriet Beecher Stowe said in 1855, the colored race had been generally considered by their enemies, and sometimes even by their friends, as deficient in energy and courage. Their virtues have been supposed to be principally negative ones. Speaking of the incidents in Mr. Nell's collection she says, they will redeem the character of the race from this misconception and show how much injustice there may often be in a generally accepted idea. Continuing, she says, in considering the services of the colored patriots of the revolution, we are to reflect upon them as far more magnanimous, because rendered to a nation which did not acknowledge them as citizens and equals and in whose interests and prosperity they had less at stake. It was not for their own land they fought, not even for a land which had adopted them, but for a land which had enslaved them, and whose laws, even in freedom, often are oppressed and protected. Bravery, under such circumstances, has a peculiar beauty and merit, and their white brothers may remember that generosity, disinterested courage and bravery, are of no particular race and complexion and that the image of the Heavenly Father may be reflected alike by all. Each record of worth in the suppressed and despised people should be pondered, for it is by many such that the cruel and unjust public sentiment, which has so long proscribed them, may be reversed, and full opportunities given them to take rank among the nations of the earth. Estimates from competent sources state that not less than 3.000 Negro soldiers did service in the American army during the revolution. Rhode Island first made her slaves free men and then called on them to fight. A black regiment was raised there, of which Colonel Christopher Green was made commander. Connecticut furnished a black battalion under command of Colonel David Humphrey. Prior to the revolution, two Virginia Negroes, Israel Titus and Samuel Jenkins, had fought under Braddock and Washington in the French and Indian War. It has been said that one of the men killed when Major Pitcairn commanding the British advance on Concord and Lexington. April 19, 1775, ordered his troops to fire on the Americans, was a Negro bearing arms. Peter Salem a Negro did service during the Revolution, and is said to have killed the same Major Pitcairn, at the Battle of Dinker Hill, in some old engravings of the battle, 
Salem is pictured as occupying a prominent position. These pictures were carried on some of the currency of the monumental bank of Charlestown, Massachusetts and the Freeman's Bank of Boston. Other black men fought at Dunker Hill, of whom we had the names of Salem Poor, Titus Coburn, Alexander Ames, Barzilalu and Godohau. After the war these men were pensioned. Prince, a Negro soldier, was Colonel Barton's chief assistant in capturing the British officer, Major General Prescott at Newport. R. I. Premuse Babcock received an honorable discharge from the army signed by General Washington. Lambo Latham and Jordan Freeman fell with Ledyard at the storming of Fort Griswold. Freeman is said to have killed Major Montgomery, a British officer who was leading an attack on Americans in a previous fight. History does not record whether or not this was the same or a related Montgomery to the one who killed Crispy's attacks at Boston. Hammett, one of General Washington's Negroes was drawing a pension as a revolutionary soldier as late as 1839. Oliver Cromwell served six years and nine months in call. Israel Shreve's regiment of New Jersey troops under Washington's immediate command. Charles Bowles became an American soldier at the age of 16 years and served to the end of the revolution. Seymour Burr and Jeremy Jonah were Negro soldiers in a Connecticut regiment. A Negro whose name is not known obtained the countersign by which Mad Anthony Wayne was enabled to take Stony Point and guided and helped him to do so. Jack Grove was a Negro steward on board an American vessel which the British captured. He figured out that the vessel could be retaken if sufficient courage were shown. He insisted and at length prevailed upon his captain to make the attempt, which was successful. There was in Massachusetts during those revolutionary days one company of Negro men bearing a special designation, the Boats. It was a notable body of men. At the close of the war its fame and services were recognized by John Hancock presenting to it a beautiful banner. The European struggle recently ended furnished a remarkable example of female heroism and devotion to country in the case of the Russian woman who enlisted as a common soldier in the army of the Tsar, served with distinction and finally organized an effective unit of female soldiers known as the Battalion of Death. More resourceful and no less remarkable and heroic is the case of Deborah Gannett a Negro woman soldier of the Revolution, which may be summed up in the following resolution passed by the General Court of Massachusetts during the session of 1791, XXII whereas, it appears to this court that the said Deborah Gannett enlisted, under the name of Robert Shirtliff, in Captain Webb's company, in the 4th Massachusetts Regiment, on May 20, 1782, and did actually perform the duties of a soldier, in the late Army of the United States to the 23rd day of October, 1783, for which she has received no compensation, and, whereas, it further appears that the said Deborah exhibited an extraordinary instance of female heroism by discharging the duties of a faithful, gallant soldier, and at the same time preserving the virtue and chastity of her sex unsuspected and unblemished, and was discharged from the service with a fair and honorable character, therefore, resolved, that the treasurer of this commonwealth be and the hereby island directed to issue his note to the said Deborah for the sum of 34 pounds, bearing interest from October 23, 1783. There is not lacking evidence that Negroes distinguished themselves in the struggles of the pioneer settlers against the Indians. This was particularly true of the early history of Kentucky. The following incidents are recorded in Thompson's Young People's History of Kentucky. Ben Stockton was a slave in the family of Major George Stockton of Fleming County. He was a regular Negro, and though a slave, was devoted to his master. He hated an Indian and loved to moralize over a dead one, getting into a towering rage and swearing magnificently when a horse was stolen, 
handled his rifle well, though somewhat foppishly, and hopped, danced and showed his teeth when a prospect offered to chase the yaller varmints. His master had confidence in his resolution and prudence, while he was a great favorite with all the hunters, and added much to their fun on dull expeditions. On one occasion, when a party of white men in pursuit of Indians who had stolen their horses called at Stockton's station for reinforcements, Ben, among others, volunteered. They overtook the savages at Kirk Springs in Lewis County, and dismounted to fight, but as they advanced, they could see only eight or ten, who disappeared over the mountain, pressing on. They discovered on descending the mountain such indications as convinced them that the few they had seen were but decoys to lead them into an ambuscade at the base, and a retreat was ordered. Ben was told of it by a man near him, but he was so intent on getting a shot that he did not hear, and the order was repeated in a louder tone whereupon he turned upon his monitor a reproving look, grimaced and gesticulated ludicrously, and motioned to the man to be silent. He then set off rapidly down the mountain. His white comrade, unwilling to leave him, ran after him, and reached his side just as he leveled his gun at a big Indian standing tiptoe on a log and peering into the thick woods. At the crack of Ben's rifle the savage bounded into the air and fell. The others set up a fierce yell, and, as the fearless negro said, skipped from tree to tree like grasshoppers. He bawled out, take dad to member Ben the black white man, and the two beat a hasty retreat, in the family of Capt. James Astill, who established a station about 15 miles south of Boanisboro, was a Negro slave, Monk, who was intelligent, bold as a lion, and as faithful to his pioneer friends as though he were a free white settler defending his own rights. About daylight, March 20th, 1782. When all the men of the fort except four were absent on an Indian trail, a body of the savages came upon Miss Jenny Glass, who was outside, but near the station, milking Monk being with her. They killed and scalped Miss Glass and captured Monk. When questioned as to the force inside the walls, the shrewd and self-possessed Negro represented it as much greater than it was and told of preparations for defense. The Indians were deceived, and after killing the cattle, they retreated across the river. When the Battle of Little Mountain opened two days later, Monk, who was still a prisoner with the Indians cried out, Don't give way. Boss Jim, there's only about twenty-five redskins and you can whip them. This was valuable and encouraging information to the whites. When the Indians began to advance on Lieutenant Miller, when he was sent to prevent a flank movement and guard the horse holders, Monk called also to him to hold his ground and the white men would win, instead of being instantly killed as was to be apprehended. Even though the savages might not understand his English, he made his escape before the fight closed and got back to his friends, on their return to the station, 25 miles, without sufficient horses for the wounded, he carried on his back, most of the way, James Berry, whose thigh was broken, he had learned to make gunpowder, and obtaining saltpetre from Peaton's Cave, in Madison County, he frequently furnished this indispensable article to Estill's station and Boanisburgo. He has been described as being 5 feet 5 inches high and weighing 200 pounds. He was a respected member of the Baptist Church. When whites and blacks worshipped together, he was held in high esteem by the settlers and his young master, Wallace Estill, gave him his freedom and clothed and fed him as long as he lived thereafter till about 1835, a year or two after the close of the Revolutionary War. A Mr. Woods was living near Crab Orchard, Kentucky, with his wife. One daughter said to be ten years old, and a lame Negro man, early one morning, her husband being away, 
Mrs. Woods went a short distance from the house, discovered seven or eight Indians in ambush. She ran back into the house, so closely pursued that before she could fasten the door one of the savages forced his way in. The Negro instantly seized him. In the scuffle the Indian threw him, falling on top. The Negro held him in a strong grasp and called to the girl to take an axe which was in the room and kill him. This she did by two well-aimed blows, and the Negro then asked Mrs. Woods to let in another that he with the axe might dispatch him as he came and so, one by one, kill them all. By this time, however, some men from the station nearby, having discovered that the house was attacked, had come up and opened fire on the savages, by which one was killed and the others put to flight. Chapter X from Lexington to Sierra-Rizal Negro in War of 1812 Incident of the Chesapeake Battle of Lake Erie Perry's Fighters 10% Negroes Incident of the Governor Tompkins Colonists form Negro Regiment's Defense of New Orleans Andrew Jackson's Tribute Negroes in Mexican and Civil Wars in the Spanish-American War Negroes in the Philippines Heroes of Sierra-Rizal General Butler's Tribute to Negroes Wendell Phillips on D.O.U.S.S.A.I. and Lumberture Prior to the actual war of 1812 and one of the most conspicuous causes leading to it, was the attack on the Chesapeake, an American war vessel. Here the Negro in the Navy figured in a most remarkable degree. The vessel was highlyed, fired upon and forced to strike her colors by the British. She was boarded, searched and four persons taken from the crew charged with desertion from the English Navy. Three of these were Negroes and one white. The charge against the Negroes could not have been very strong for they were dismissed, while the white man was hanged. The naval history of our second war with Great Britain is replete with incidents concerning the participation of the Negro. Mackenzie's history of the life of Commodore Perry states that at the famed battle, 